and behold.
Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise. You may be seated for just a moment. We wanted to start things off a little different this morning. We're celebrating Advent season and our season of Christmas. Today we're going to focus on Jesus being our hope. And uh, just so excited to be able to worship with you all this morning. Just welcome to Gateway Baptist Church this morning. So glad you're here. Uh, we have some things going on in the life of our body. Um, during this Christmas season, we want you to be made aware of. We're very excited about this. I know many of you had a great time last night up in the eclectic area with the Nativity Tour. And so happy that you all were able to make it and that God was faithful to keep the weather nice for everyone. Um, but just a few things to remind everybody about this week. And every single um, event that's happening over the next few weeks is on our website at gatewaybaptist.com under the News and Events tab. So if you go into there, you'll be able to see all of these things. Uh, but the first is this Wednesday. Very excited. I know the kids are excited about this. We're having our gingerbread house decorating time this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. We'll have refreshments and a time together to worship and get your creative, artistic stuff out to be able to decorate some houses and just enjoy time of fellowship with family and all of us being together. Also, this Saturday, we have two ladies' events, two opportunities for you in the morning. Ladies, you will be gathering at Chrissy Lim's home for the Homemakers Workshop. It's on Christmas baking. And then that evening, um, it's called the Mystery Dinner, Who Kidnapped Santa? And the uh, details and registration are on the website for that. Very excited about that. So two opportunities for the ladies to fellowship and spend a wonderful Saturday together in that way. More things in the weeks to come, and you can look at the website for those things. Uh, lastly, on this very important meeting next week for our members, uh, we're having our annual member meeting. Uh, we're going to be immediately following the service, heading to the gym. We're providing a pizza lunch for everyone. And so we uh, urge you and encourage you to be a part of this. It's the one time a year we come together as uh, the faith family. We have to vote on the budget to give updates about the ministry, things going on in our community and in here in the church, casting vision for 2024, and uh, just to be able to update you on some things. So we highly encourage you to be a part. Please go to the website and register, if you would, to help us out to know how much pizza to get. We just want to make sure we have enough to feed everyone. And so it, it'll be last about an hour, an hour and a half, probably close to an hour and a half with the eating and everything. But we would love for you to be a part of that time uh, for us to discuss what God is doing amongst our faith family. And we've had the opportunity, we know, the past few weeks to honor some men who God has uh, faithfully brought through the Fisher's Farm program. And today we want to acknowledge Mr. Jeff Hand Sr., who's graduating from phase one. Very excited, brother. Um, Coming out of that, he is starting a home roofing and re renovation business, and Jay, who has just graduated as well, is going to be joining him. So we just be praying for him and this new venture for you, brother. We're so excited what God is doing in your life and the future he has for you. What we're going to do this morning and over the next few weeks is we're going to have a family come up, um, or a couple, and we're going to light the Advent candles and to acknowledge our king in these different ways. And so I'd like to ask the Crouch family to please come up for this morning. Good morning, church family. Today we are lighting the Advent candle of hope. Biblical hope is different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is merely wishing for the best while being uncertain of the outcome. By contrast, biblical hope is a confident expectation of what God has promised and its fulfillment. It's based on the unchangeable character of our sovereign God and not on circumstances. Therefore, we hope in what we know to be certain. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and all, and he will redeem Israel for all his iniquity. Psalm 135-8. Psalm 822-25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hebrews six seventeen through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If you'll bow with me in prayer. Sovereign God, we give you glory our creator and sustainer. You created all things and you uphold all things by your power and your might. And you had mercy on us as sinners. You sent Christ to live and to die and to be resurrected, Lord. And that is our hope. We hope in Christ alone. Not in good works, not in deeds, not in what we say or do, Lord, but in Christ. Thank you for your gracious gift. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, guys. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship the Lord through song.
lavished on us. His blood was a payment, his life was a cross. We stood in the dead we could never afford. Our sins, they are
and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for that truth there. Your glorious name, Lord, that we proclaim not only on Sunday mornings, Lord, each and every moment of each and every day, we are blessed beyond belief, God. Lord, let us not take the truth of your gospel grace for granted. Thank you for this church and for allowing us to worship together each and every um, Sunday and Wednesday and small groups throughout the week, Lord. As we go into this Christmas season, Lord, we celebrate the advent of hope this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give encouragement to our Gateway families throughout this Christmas season, God, just to spread Jesus' love everywhere we go. Lord, through our workplaces, through school, wherever we're at with family members, any different events, parties, get-togethers, Lord, let us not lose the sight that we are here to spread your gospel news. It's not just about um, just gifts and parties and get-togethers, Lord. It is about the truth of your gospel, and that is that Jesus came. And he was born a real human child, God. He lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross for our sins. 
Lord, let us not just forget that truth and let us really be bold this Christmas season. Um, Lord, we lift up the marriages of Gateway. We spoke last week in Genesis 2.24 about how you consummated the first marriage with Adam and Eve. And Lord, we lift up those who are married in our congregation here at Gateway. Lord, that you would allow us to be that same image, God, that you created in a perfect, holy matrimony. Lord, that we would be emboldened to share the gospel with those around us through our marriages, that they would see that we are different through different than earthly marriages, Lord, that we have a, a deep desire, Lord, that's not just about our own happiness or joy, but that, Lord, we would represent you to our other spouse. Lord, let us be stewards and shepherds inside of our homes with our children and those relationships around us that they would see that, uh, Lord, we are just seeking you in each aspect of our lives. Lord, we lift up um, Dwayne Rembert over at Flatline Ministries, Lord. He's spoken throughout the years here at Gateway, and he always brings such a vibrant enthusiasm to his preaching, Lord. I pray that this morning as they gather, Lord, that he is, um, Lord, just speaking your, your words through him. He is the vessel, and Lord, that you're providing um, just a revival over there in Chisholm, and that he would be seeking you on his hands and knees, Lord. There's a lot of turmoil and strife through preaching and delivering the gospel news each week. Lord, it's heavy at times, and Lord, I pray that whatever um, struggles and difficulties they are experiencing, Lord, that you would start to alleviate some of those, that you would provide help for him, and that he would just be surrounded by so many uh, gospel-believing people, God, that are not just there to lend a hand, but Lord, actually share the news um, around that Chisholm community, Lord, that they need it so much. Lord, as we do each week, we lift up an international group, and this group um, is in Tanzania and East Africa. Um, they're about nine hours ahead of us, and so as they're getting ready to go to bed tonight, we lift this group up. It's a theological center where they teach um, how to teach the Bible, God. And so, Lord, as they um, just disciple future pastors, God, I pray that you would have these uh, men and women, Lord, that they would just be led by the Spirit, God that they would be seeking truth in their own Bible studies and in their teachings through the school, or that the leadership there would use the funds that they are provided wisely, God, not just thrown away, and that you would uh, really let the gospel spread throughout um, the church plants that will come through the teaching there in Tanzania. Lord, we lift up CJ's. He's bringing the word this morning. Thank you so much for our entire elder and preaching staff here at Gateway. Lord, we're going to get into uh, Genesis 3 today and just the that can be heavy at times. So we lift up CJ and let him be just the same as Dwayne we mentioned earlier, Lord, that he would be the vessel for your words and that we would hear the truth of your of your Bible this morning. Thank you for all the um, giving and the offering and tithes, Lord, whether here or online. We pray that it would go before you, God, and you would use it to expand your, uh, your glory. Thank you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, and kids, you are dismissed for kids' worship. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely 
sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-framed of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is lighter. I thought we just needed a reminder, I play that often, of what we get to celebrate during this season and every day, that we are here because our King has come, amen? And over the next few weeks, we will be acknowledging that as our King is our hope, King is our joy, our King is our peace, and our King who is love. And uh, I just love getting that reminder from old Dr. Lockridge um, every so often, so... Well, it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, be praying for our Pastor Grady. He's good. He just went to North Alabama this uh, weekend to at a robotics function with his uh, oldest son, Grady Jeremiah. So they'll be traveling back today. They had a competition making robots and stuff. So that's where he is today. So, But uh, it's always a privilege and honor to be able to share and encourage you guys this morning. Um, so as you turn to Genesis chapter 3 on whatever device or... Hard copy of God's Word. I love how God operates in His providence. Don't y'all? Just the simple things. Like Grady a few weeks ago, 
extended Genesis for us. We were, he, y'all know Grady, he doesn't like to do too many verses at once. Yeah. <laughs> so he had this one passage where he was going to do one, and he was studying, the Holy Spirit just nudged him and said, we need to break this up. And so providentially, this text was supposed to have already been done, but that it's falling on this day, specifically us acknowledging God as our hope, is just amazing. It's just, it fits this text in Genesis Perfectly, And it's because what we're going to look at today is the birth of hopelessness. When hopelessness came into the world. Therefore, if there's hopelessness, you have to look toward hope for there to be anything rectified or any good to come out of it. So today we are looking at, as we just saying, the birth of our story as humanity in the context of where sin came in and hopelessness came. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And just before I read this part of the text, the present state of where we are in the garden after the past few weeks, humans were created. Adam and Eve uh, were made. Animals were made. Adam has been given authority in the garden. He's named the animals. Um, there's perfection. There's peace. There's order. There's harmony. There's a perfect reality at this moment. Okay, As Kyle prayed about this, the first marriage, the first couple who started to begin their life together, the scripture is silent as far as the time frame of when you know, they both were created and then to this exact moment. I would think in using logic and what I've read, it, just, it probably was not very soon after they're being created that this moment took place. So we're going to look at a very influential, just an eternal impacting encounter um, that God had with his creation and a third party comes on to the scene. So if you'd please stand in the honor of reading God's word. This morning I'm reading from the New American Standard. And it will be on the screen as well. We're looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Lord, in a text that seems so hopeless, full of despair and sorrow and tragedy, God, we see the birth of hope come from this, as what we just sang about all morning, the glory of your name, the glory of your redemption, that you provided a way for us to be redeemed. So I pray as we look at this text, God, we're going to get a glimpse of your amazing nature. We're going to get a glimpse of the enemy's nature, and we're going to get a glimpse of our nature as humanity. But Lord, we thank you that you are our hope, and this has good news in the midst of this very difficult encounter. Guide and direct us by your spirit this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at verse 4 again. Sorry, every time I see that video, I get choked up. Then I start sniffing. So, all right, let's look at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. We're going to start right there. So, a third party comes onto the scene. So, this serpent is just an easy way to say it's a snake. It's a Hebrew word for snake. At this stage, everything in the garden is good. That's what God said. And then this party comes along, this serpent, one of the animals, that was described as being crafty or shrewd or cunning. And it is the enemy. Revelations 12, verse 9 states, Thousands of years later, John expresses this, 
And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here is describing Satan, the devil, as the great dragon, but I just wanted to give context, and was described as the serpent of old. So this serpent showing up on the scene is Satan himself, okay? Satan embodied the snake. The snake was an instrument, a tool to speak through. And guys, think about this. This is what, I mean, I thought more about this encounter than I have in years studying for this thing, just the whole context of this moment in history. I mean, the beginning of time that Satan chose this animal. He could have wallowed up as a hippo. He could have come up as a cow or as a dog or as a snail, but he chose the snake. Okay? Just with the context, even thinking about that. It's not, and, and this is just was his cunningness. And we're going to see the root of why he did what he did and how he came across in this. So somewhere between Genesis 131, where everything was good, and this moment, one of the first initial events of sin happened. The first fall. Look at Isaiah chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Now Isaiah here is speaking regarding... Um, the king of Babylon, but as the back shadows, like the superimposed behind the king of Babylon, this is referencing Satan. This is referencing the devil, even though there's an expression of dealing with the king of Babylon, it is also describing the enemy. And he says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. And their star of the morning, some of your translations may say day star, and it literally means Lucifer. That's where he gets that name. O star of the morning or day star, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have been weakened in the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here's the big finale, all encompassing. I will make myself like the most high. So Satan here, being described in this way, is in his heart, I love how Isaiah, how the Lord allowed him to put the word heart in there. Our inner person, what comes from the depths of who we are. This is where pride, this is where sin begins. Pride begins. Jesus said in Luke ten eighteen, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. This is the first moment. So somewhere between where everything was good and perfect, because Satan was, we're about to see, created a perfect angel. And the moment of Genesis 3, this is something happened in between and this is it. I'm going to read this. I just want you to listen. It's a little more lengthy, so I didn't want to put on the thing. Listen to Ezekiel 28. And Ezekiel here is describing the king of Tyre. God is speaking through Ezekiel. But it's also, again, the shadowing behind this is Satan, what he's describing. Son of man, this is God speaking. Thus says the Lord, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold. They were the workmanship of your settings and sockets. They were in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Here's the key. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Until righteousness was unrighteousness was found in you. I'm going to read this one more time. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. 
Therefore, I have cast you as a profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. There's that word again. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. What an amazing description. Between Isaiah 14 and this one, God describing Satan's heart, his nature, this prideful moment, okay, where Satan, again, wants to be like God, elevate himself. And again, what did it say here? He had wisdom. He was created perfectly in beauty. He had wisdom. And then his wisdom was corrupted when unrighteousness came within his heart. His inner condition changed. Because of his beauty, he was corrupted because he saw himself in this glorious way with his pride. So Satan's pride motivated him to come at this moment, somewhere in the midst of this time frame, to challenge God's authority and to corrupt what's happening in the garden. And it's interesting to think of the time frame. Satan saw Adam hanging out with the animals and all those types of things, and he waited for this moment when Eve was created. And this creation, these two individuals, was the first creation that was relational. Jesus didn't, I mean, God didn't have a relationship with the animals or a relationship with the trees or a relationship with the water. This was a new creation that had a different component to it. And Satan recognized that as God was being glorified in the garden, everything was perfect. And so he enters into this situation at this moment in his deceptive ways, in his pride, in his corrupted wisdom, he was glory driven. And in just a few verses later, we're going to see the first thing that we ever hear the way to describe Satan in Scripture is Eve said, the serpent deceived me. So his first description is he's the deceiver. It's the first thing that Eve mentioned, when, which we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. But here's, here's Satan showing up on the scene in this way. And you just think about the strategic timing. Why at this moment? Why specifically now? He could have waited for them to keep the garden, to cultivate the garden, all these things. But he showed up at this moment. And it's just things we can look at. I mean, the scripture's not very clear on the exact why, but we just use our minds and logic and reasoning to look at what Satan did the rest of scripture and how he comes across and what he does. Now, there's no doubt he found an opportunity here to start his first prideful scheme to impact and corrupt um, this perfect realm that God had created. And as we're going to see, guys, if Satan wanted to be like the Most High and place himself above God, above the stars of God, to promote himself, to bring glory to himself. Everything he does is to take our eyes off who? God. Anything that could deter God's glory, that he has never credited with things, that could you know, diminish or influence someone to say that God is not glorious, that's his goal. And so he found a moment here with Adam and Eve, which we easily could see, where they were new on the scene, vulnerable, maybe even in a weak-minded state. We don't know how long they've been there for him to come in and do what he does in his deception and his pride. And we've experienced it for thousands of years, and we're going to see in a little bit what he does here. He does the same thing to Jesus. It's like a part two here of trying to get influence Jesus to sin himself, and we're going to see that here soon. So Satan targets the couple at this moment, targets Eve too. I mean, let's look back at verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the God has made. And he said to the woman, he targeted Eve. That's significant too, guys. It's not, nothing Satan does is an accident. 
He targeted Eve. And again, she's new on the scene, was just created. We don't know the, how long they've been together, what she has seen, what she has heard. But here's the first response. Here's how he confronts her with a question to try to influence her. And he says, indeed, has God said, or did God really say, some translations say that, did God really say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So his initial pride-motivated scheme was to sow seeds of doubt right out of the gate about God's boundaries, his commands, his authority surrounding this whole situation, and he targets Eve to do it. And then in verse 2, here's Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Do you guys notice anything in that that's a little off? So we would think Eve was not created when God told Adam not to eat the tree. Don't, ta- don't eat from the tree in the middle, the knowledge of tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve wasn't on the scene yet. So Eve had to be told by Adam this command. When she was created, he's probably like, okay, here's my helper. First things first, let's lay the groundwork. Talking about marriage. <laughs> let's have a little powwow. Here's the boundaries. We can eat of anything in this garden, but that tree, that's off limits. There's one prohibition, one restriction. So she gets right, it right for the most part. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, check. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat from it, check. But what does she do next? Did God tell Adam not to touch it? So again, some theologians, different commentaries I've read, nobody has a clear answer on why did Eve add that? Was that true? No. So did Eve just have a misunderstanding? Was she putting something on God and adding a restriction that was not there because she was struggling with the fact that she was restricted to do something? Nobody clearly knows, but she clearly was told something that was not true. God did not say, don't touch that tree. Okay? And then obviously at the end, she ended it with, you will, we will die. God said, you will die. That is true. So then the serpent... Satan had an opportunity here to open a door with her response. When he says, surely you will not die, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, look, verse 5, this is his response. You're not going to die. The first lie, influence. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So again, you just think about the emphasis of the tree. Grady mentioned this a couple weeks ago. What is the significance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He talked about there's a lot of views out there, but the two main views that he honed in on a few weeks ago was that looking at the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first one aspect of it, that it could be an all knowledge, that this was a test of whether you're content with the revelation and knowledge God has given you, or do we want more? Are we unsatisfied with the knowledge we had? So here Satan could be influencing Eve to go, you know, eating of this tree, you gain more knowledge. You have boundaries right now, limited knowledge on what you're supposed to do in the garden. But this opportunity, as you eat of this fruit, would open your eyes to things that only God knows. And as Grady mentioned last week, even in Deuteronomy 29, it said the secret things belong to the Lord. We all know there's some knowledge that is not for us. So that's one of the views of what the tree may have encompassed or the the consequences of that. And number two, he mentioned is where, as eating of the tree, that it would bring the knowledge of good and evil, right or wrong, that this would reveal in such a way that this is a test, that do we trust God's moral authority? Do we trust his boundaries? 
And, or do we determine good, evil, right, and wrong for ourselves? God established the boundaries in the garden. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is the way it's supposed to be. And many of us on a daily basis since this beginning have struggled with as morality is relative to what I think. Morality is relative to the culture of what I think it is. I will set my own standards. I will set my own ways, what I believe to be true of right or wrong. And it truly gets to the heart of sin, which is iniquity. Literally what he's trying to influence her with is for Eve to have her own way, which is iniquity. It's the very core of sin, that you're not going to believe God, you're going to believe the enemy and then do what you want to do, not believing or trusting in God's standard of holiness, righteousness, or morality. And so as Grady mentioned a few weeks back, I think it's both. I think there's a combination of the two where these two come together because we're going to see through the rest of time in history, after they eat it, the way man responded I think it's a, it's a glimpse of both. So Satan's scheme here was to influence Eve by one misrepresenting what God said. He distorted the truth. Okay, He was speaking truth, but it was distorted. So technically, it's not. It's a lie. He was misrepresenting what God said. He also was questioning God's motive. God gave one restriction out of the entire garden, only one prohibition. So he was even saying, testing God's motive to say, is what God's, I mean, how dare he do that? Why would he restrict you, in a sense? And I, one, one commentary I read, I loved how this author put it. He said, God was establishing his covenant care for Adam and Eve. He was establishing an atmosphere in the garden to where Adam and Eve had to be wholly dependent on him, fully, not thinking anything of themselves, but everything they needed would come through his glorious provision. And then, in a sense, to also be able to walk out in such a way to practice obedience, to start living out a life of obedience to the one who created them, the creation obeying the creator. And then with all-encompassing of that, after misrepresenting God, questioning his motives, all of that is attack on God's character, trying to distort as much as he can of their view of who God is and what he has done. So Satan's sowing two main areas of doubt here. God's word cannot be trusted. Literally looking at him in a sense, does God speak the truth? How can you trust his intentions with this? He's restricting you. He's keeping this away from you. You have every opportunity to experience this other level of knowledge or morality or viewing things in a different way to have his lenses. So God is, I mean, Satan is putting in the first thing of doubt about God cannot be trusted. And on the tail of that, number two, is that he's sowing areas of doubt that God is not good. And guys, this is to get to the heart of everything we even struggle with. From day one, this negative prohibition that they're thinking it is, God was using as a positive. When he said, when he restricted it, it was a positive restriction. And what Satan is saying, him prohibiting this is a negative thing. Why would he do this to you? You have an opportunity to have full knowledge. You don't need him. It's in our best interest. You can the worship of self. You're on the throne. And this was the beginning of the appeal to idolatry. Right out of the gate. Idolatry. Right here in the garden is what Satan is trying to influence Eve with. That the worship of self. That you don't need to look to the Lord. He's not enough. Everything in this garden that you've been provided, in a sense, Satan is saying, is this enough? Is it really? Isn't there more that you can experience? So idolatry has been sown in right here in the beginning in the garden which would be expected knowing Satan's heart. His own pride 
working its way in to influence Adam and Eve. I love uh, Pastor Phillips. Grady loves this guy. It's his commentary as well. I love this statement. He said, the state of our heart will determine the direction of our eyes. The state of our heart will determine the direction of our eyes. And if Satan was influencing Eve with all of this, trying to influence her with this question, trying to manipulate and deceive and twist the words, he's affecting her heart. And we're going to see her response that within her, the battle that's going on with her own pride, this, this unrighteousness that was starting to surface in her, is going to have a direct effect on how she views the situation. And so as we see here in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So she ate the fruit, but this is so key. Look how she responded. Look how the writer of Genesis, people most believe it's Moses, when the woman saw, so again, what she's experiencing in this moment, the turmoil, the confusion, the deception that she's experiencing with Satan causes her viewpoint to see the tree in this way, that it was good for food, delight to the eyes, and that it's desirable to make one wise. Do those three things sound a little familiar? Because this has been the Satan's tactics from this point on for thousands of years until even today. And every three, one of those things that she saw was the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Sound familiar? 1 John chapter 2. It's called, this is the big three temptations. Every sin falls under this, one of these three. Every, anything we do that's against God's word, disobedient to him, missing the mark, sinning, iniquity falls under one of these three big three. John here says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful part of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the world's, what that means there is the world system. This is the system that governs, is governed by Satan. This is his domain. He's been given limited authority that he rules and governs, and everything the world system is about is contrary to God, contrary to his word, everything. And that's why coming out of that, this is what Satan promotes. Satan's promoting the world. He's promoting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That is contrary to who God is, and it leads to sin and disobedience. And so, guys, I love that even in the glimpse thousands of years ago, in the very beginning, we get to see a glimpse into Satan's nature. This is what he does. And many of you here who are military, and we all know it's just normal strategy, to effectively win a war or battle, you have to know who? Your enemy. <laughs> and for us to know this is his schemes, this is his ways, this is what he does. He was hitting Adam and Eve at a weak point. As we're about to see, he hit Jesus at a weak point. Thousands of years, this has been his mode. Deception, manipulation, twisting things, to lead to destruction. He's the accuser. He's the father of lies. This is what he does. And it started even here in the very beginning to impact humanity, to corrupt it, to pollute it with sin. And so as we even see in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness, it said Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He was just baptized. The moment before this is even critical. Satan knows this. He's watching. He knows what's going on. Jesus was just baptized. The father spoke. The Holy Spirit came down as a dove. There was an affirmation of him as the Messiah, the Christ, with his cousin John the Baptist. It was a good moment, right? 
pretty good moment. And right after that moment, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. And the scripture says literally, to be tempted. Okay? And again, just thinking about Satan's ways and how he approaches us in deceit in, in, with humanity. That when he entered the wilderness, did he, did he approach Jesus on day one? Day two, day 10, day 15. I mean, this is strategic. When did Satan wait? Day 40. Why? Because he knew he was a man. He knew he was struggling with the whole... What was the whole point of Satan even wanting to tempt him? We're going to see this in a couple weeks in Genesis 3.15. Satan's mission from this point on was to do anything he could to destroy and corrupt the seed of the one who was going to come to crush his head. We're going to see that in a few weeks. Sorry, Grady. Had to jump a little. That's his mission. If I can destroy the one who's going to destroy me, then I'm good. And I can walk in my pride and do my thing. And so even a part of this, if Satan could get Jesus to bite and to sin and to be any, just one small sin, he's no longer what? God. He no longer can be the perfect sacrificial lamb. He no longer could conquer death, conquer the grave, conquer sin. If he could get Jesus to sin or to disobey, to do anything that's corrupt or out of God's will, the Father's will. So that's his motive. But he shows up on day 40 when Jesus, the scripture says, is hungry in a weak state. And then right out of the gate in the wilderness, once he shows up in the way he does, this mocking spirit. And what does he say to Jesus? If you were the son of God, you can almost hear just how he looks and say, if you are the son of God with his arrogance and pride, turn this bread to stone. If you are the son of God, Throw yourself off the temple because angels will lift you up according to Psalm 91. Did y'all forget? He quotes scripture. Satan quotes Psalm 91. That's how manipulative and deceiving he is. He will quote, he quoted God's own words back to God. You know, Jesus like, you know, I did write it. So I was like, I know it's what it is. But he twisted it. That's what he does. He's manipulating Jesus. And then lastly, he hones in on God's glory. And he says, hey, if you fall down and worship me, all these kingdoms, they'll be yours because they've been given to me temporarily. All of them will be yours and their glory. Again, he's honing in to try to get Jesus to sin, which would just destroy everything. And the entire redemptive plan would be thwarted. And that's what he does. And then every single time, praise God for Hebrews 4.15 in 1 Corinthians 10. But Hebrews 4.15, it said, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Praise God. Why is that so wonderful? Because he's our example. He's fully God and fully man, but he had to be tempted in all things for us for, to be our example, for us to be able to respond as he did. And how did he respond? Jesus resisted temptation and combated the scheme of the devil with the weapon of our warfare. Right here. Every single time Satan brought the temptation, we all know, how did he respond? The word. Temptation, the word. Temptation, the word. It's like Satan's there with a BB gun, and then Jesus throws a nuke. You know? But that's it. For us, praise God for the wilderness. That's why Jesus went into it. For us, to show us. To show his glory, his power, his splendor, his majesty, what we have access to. We have the word of God. He declared Deuteronomy three times. And by declaring truth, he was able to resist the temptation and come out in the power of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.13. I love this. 
Thank God for this verse. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. And can I get an amen? I mean, guys, that's great news. That's the hope so that you will be able to endure it. This is a sanctificational hope verse. For all of us in here in Christ, as Christians, this is our sanctificational hope. We've been justified, we've been saved, and on a daily basis, as he conformed us to his image, as he's making us holy, as we are struggling with our pollution of sin and our sinfulness and our flesh, this is our hope saying no matter what we go through, whatever Satan brings our way, he has provided a way of escape. We can endure it. We do not have to give in. That's hope. And how does he do What's our way of escape? Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, where Paul here says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Again, not in our strength. As, as Grady likes to say, we're not white-knuckling it in our own strength, in our own gifts, in our own power. The only way we can resist and thwart what it, Satan started in the garden to try to deceive and manipulate is through his strength, his power, his spirit that abides and resides in us. And then he says to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And what's the armor we have access to? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. That's what we get to appropriate. That's what we get to operate in to resist the work of the devil. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote here. He said, if we would successfully wrestle with Satan... We must make the Holy Scriptures our daily resort. Out of this sacred book, we must continually draw our armor and our ammunition. We must lay hold on the glorious doctrines of God's word, make them our daily meat and drink, so we will be strong to resist the devil and joyful in discovering that he will flee. Guys, this isn't rocket science. The gospel is beautiful and precious, but it's, it's simple to understand. We have been empowered by his spirit through the cross and his resurrection power to walk in victory, to walk in his power by his grace, to be able to appropriate his armor, his truth, his righteousness, faith, salvation, his word, to be able to walk this out. And as Spurgeon says that we need to feed on this daily, feed on his word, eat and drink it in, rest in his truth. Because I'm telling you guys, every day in some form or fashion, I believe, and I've experienced it, we're going to hear, did God really say... We are. That's all. In some form or fashion, the way the enemy works, and I'm saying it's Satan himself, he's one entity, but he has his minions, his little demonic forces, all that he does to try to lie and thwart that we're going to struggle almost every day hearing, did God really say? Did he really say this about a promise? Did he really command us to do this? Is his principle really true in this? Does his word really say that? And the only way we're going to combat that thought and that influence and that manipulation and deception is to bring truth back. Yes, he did. And only by the power of his spirit am I able to take that truth and then walk in it, appropriate it, get it battle ready. We, don't, we lack nothing. You do know that, right? You lack nothing in God if you're in him. If you're not in him right now, I just said, please, come talk to me afterwards, please. If you're battling, whether he's real, if you're battling about giving your life up and submitting and making him Lord and saying, God, I give it all to you. I know I need a Savior. I know, based on what I've seen here, sin came into the world. I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need to repent. Please come talk to me afterwards if that's where you are. If you have any questions about that. But for those of us in Christ, 
This is what we get to appropriate in our life. This is what he's given us. We are going to wrestle with Satan. It's a part of the call. It's what we're a part of as humans because Satan established it way back then when sin and rebellion were birthed. And the reason we're all in this position, guys, the reason we wrestle with Satan, as Spurgeon says, and dealing with this deception and schemes of the devil is because of the end of verse 6. Let's look back there. So when, when the woman saw that the tree, uh, she took its fruit, she ate, and here it is, she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. And at that moment, I'm sure Satan went, yes. Because Eve wasn't the key. Adam was the key. Okay? I know we all joke about Eve bit the app, you know, over the centuries. But this is all on one person, the dude. This is on Adam. Yes, men. So the reason he ate wasn't because he was deceived. I love how for, uh, Paul brought this up in 1 Timothy 2.14. He clearly said it was not Adam who was deceived. But it was the woman. So Adam willfully and consciously rebelled. So here's the guy sitting next to her, hearing the conversation, never even stepped in when he started hearing the lies start shooting out. Did God really say about this? Not, I mean, Adam could have said, whoa, okay. First of all, have you guys ever thought how weird it was that they never even questioned talking to a serpent? To even talk to an animal? I mean, Adam knows their animals weren't talking to him when he named them. What do you think I should be called? But even that context, there was so much deception and so early on, that's why I think it's so early, they wouldn't even contemplate the fact, especially Eve, she's new on the scene. Oh, it's not unusual for this snake to be talking to me? But Adam never stepped in. He could have jumped right in as the divinely ordained responsible one of the garden. He was given a charge, a mission to guard and to keep the garden, to protect Eve, to protect the harmony and the perfection of this reality. That was his responsibility, and he acquiesced. That's why the blame for the fall is on Adam. Romans 5, 18 and 19, very popular, I mean, very well-known passage. And thank God for this. This is the gospel. So then it's through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men, hopelessness. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. There's hope. For us through one man... Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, hopelessness. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus our King, the many will be made righteous. Hope. Praise God. That's it. That's our hope. But again, it goes to Adam. Adam's decision, the consequences of his choice, his sin, his rebellion, brought pain, suffering, physical and spiritual death, separation from intimacy with God in the garden. They were cast into the wilderness. And I even love the fact how that was even strategized. Jesus went to the wilderness to represent humanity who was cast into the wilderness, and so he conquered sin in the wilderness so we could conquer it too in the wilderness because they were no longer in the garden. They were living a life technically in the world, in the wilderness, separated from God, but God had a plan of redemption to restore and to bring us back. And Adam was the key. So as sin and rebellion came into the world, God's plan of redemption was already established and was about to kick in. And we're going to hear more about that in the next few weeks. But I'm going to finish with this one closing, this one. I just love this way Paul David Tripp, he's got a new Advent a devotion I've been reading. And I couldn't believe how perfect this was, how he just surmised all of this in one of his first writings of this. This is just awesome. He says, The beautiful world that God had created was now broken and groaning. The direct result of the rebellion of the ones that God had made in his image had been placed 
who he had placed is guiding and providing his love upon them. The evidence of his brokenness was everywhere, from the inner recesses of the hearts of people to violence to the corruption of government to the existence of plagues and diseases. Sure, there was a beauty still to be seen, but the whole world groaned under the weight of its brokenness. It would have been just for, for God to stay his distance, to let the world quake and groan. It would have been just response to the arrogant rebellion that brought his brokenness on the world. But in this gorgeous mystery of God's sovereign grace, he looked on this brokenness, this rebellious world, with eyes of mercy. Yes, God would act decisively, and his actions would be what he had planned in the beginning, but they would be a stunning surprise to every mere mortal. His response would not be a condemnation or judgment. His response would not be a metting out of justice. Rather, his response would be intervention and rescue. He would do in grace what the law can never do. He would do in grace what we can never do for ourselves. He would do what philosophers can never conceive and what leaders can never strategize and what poets can never imagine. He would offer the only thing that would ever address the need and solve the problem of this rebellion. He himself would become the greatest, most costly, most transformational gift ever. God would take on human flesh and invade his sin-broken world with his wisdom, his power, his glory and grace. But he wouldn't descend to a palace. Instead, the Lord Almighty, the creator, the sovereign king over all things, would humble himself to take on the form of a servant. He would live on our behalf the life we could have never lived. He would willingly die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he would rise from his tomb as the conqueror of sin and death. He would suffer every single day of his life so that he could, with his life, give grace to rebels, extend love to those who would deny his existence, and to impart wisdom to those who think they know better, and lastly, to extend forgiveness to everyone who seeks him. His coming stands as an affirmation that he will not relent. He will not be satisfied until sin and suffering are no more, and we are like him, dwelling with him in unity, dwelling with him in peace, and harmony forever and ever. Amen? That's the God we serve who has prepared the way for us to redeem us, to take our place, to justify us. And Satan and his schemes tried everything he could on multiple occasions, and he's still doing the same thing today, saints. He hasn't stopped. He's 24-7 on. But God has given us the power and the grace and all that we need to endure and to walk in holiness by his grace. Let's pray. You can please stand. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you that even though this beginning encounter could seem so despairing, where sin entered in, where rebellion came, God, that you had a plan of redemption. We thank you for your grace. We thank you as we sung this morning, Lord, that your story had a wonderful ending. And it's still, Lord, as we enter in on a daily basis to your story, that we look to you every day by your grace, your mercy, your love. Lord, that we appropriate the armor, that we get to walk in faith, that we get to walk in your words, truth, that we can rest in it, we can appropriate it. Thank you, Lord, that we can even get a glimpse after this encounter and seeing others, Lord, the way the enemy works, how to approach these situations, Lord, trusting you, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are true. God, as Kyle prayed, Lord, I pray for each of us in here that by your grace you would prepare our hearts to be able to look to you even during this season, to be salt and light, for to use us for your glory. And Lord, please help us guard our hearts 
Lord, we're no different than Adam and Eve. We're, we, are, we have had sin impugned to us because of his rebellion. Lord, may you consciously make us aware that we are to take ourselves off the throne. It's not about us. That you are on the throne, that you rule, that you reign, that we look to you for everything. We trust you. We thank you for the hope that is in you and you alone. Lead us and guide us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you see it all made new we do it's all creation groaning is a new creation coming is a glory
choice, every decision, or that we would be salt and light and your ambassadors, that we would impact this world for the glory of your name, for the sake of your kingdom, Lord. Help us, God, this week, as Cal prayed, that we would be salt and light wherever we go, that we think about that, that we have opportunities to share our faith, to show our faith for the glory of your exalted name that we worship today. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.